Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, our second edition of 2021 French Open Relived, which subtitle is David Law's 90s Time Machine Tennis, because for this one, we're going back to 1991 and the final between Jim Courier and Andre Agassi, and in particular, the Jim Courier story, um, which is not oft told I don't think. So, you know, we're all, he's in our consciousness, isn't he, Jim Courier? Because he's so much a part of the fabric of tennis still. He's very relevant still. He keeps himself relevant. And yet sometimes when that's the case, you end up talking about their, the players' careers less, looking back. But here's David Law to set that straight. (laughs) I I do feel a little bit self-indulgent with this show because I'm sure there are, a lot of our, a number of our listeners who will look at that and think, well, do I really want to know all about Jim Courier? Is there that much to say? Uh, I mean, personally, I think objectively there is anyway. I think he, he's got a really interesting career and arc and the people that were around him and his rivals and what he achieved and and, and everything else that, that we will come on to. But it is a personal odyssey for me because it was just odyssey. at such an important moment in my life that it that his arrival at the top took place in as much as that's when I fell in love with tennis and and he's not directly responsible for that but he was part of that period and uh yeah so when I was just hanging up the washing outside in the sunshine a few moments ago I was remembering back exactly 30 years to being on study leave for my exams, which I would go on to fail horrendously, um, of being in the garden, in the sunshine, coming back in and out to watch Jim Courier against all the opponents he played in that 1991 French Open. And that's what made me want to work in tennis. So just to very self-indulgently set the scene about where we're all at in 1991. Matt, we'll skim over you very quickly. Uh, not not even a twinkle in anyone's eye at that stage. Um, you've put Catherine's, Catherine's recollections. Uh, I've, I have none, David. In fact, I, I put a quick call into David Whitaker this morning um, to remind myself what 
he and my mum's views on Jim Currier were at the time because that was when they were big tennis fans and I was trudging around tennis tournaments as a toddler with my big brother um and he said I don't I don't really remember why but we didn't like him and <laughs> and then we talked about DIY um <laughs> Now we're going to change your mind, Mr. Whitaker. <laughs> we're going to change your mind. He said. He said it doesn't quite add up. He said if Jim Courier were, were around now, he probably would be the kind of player um, that he would like and really engage with. But for some reason, at the time, they didn't like him, and they He'd did like be on, on the boat. and they did like Andre Agassi. Oh yeah, I think Courier. I mean, I will confirm after this episode, but I reckon Courier is hundred percent on the boat. But. Most importantly, David, are we in the lost law years for the duration of this podcast? Take us there. Yes, we are in the heart of those years (laughs) when I was trying to discover who I was. And uh, who were you? Who did it turn out that you were? I was a loser. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yes, I didn't have any direction or motivation or get up and go or anything other than to watch tv whether it was wrestling uh, or something else like that uh, wwf um, as it was then but then i discovered tennis and it's around this period that i just sort of i couldn't believe this world existed how has nobody told me about this that it goes on outside of wimbledon and this is this was my first exposure to it so off we go no matter how many times we hear about the lost law years, I can't get my head around David being a person without any get up and go. David is the most get up and go person I know. It's messages at four a.m. prove that. I did get up and go at five this morning. It's a Jennifer Brady esque career transformation. It really is. Yeah. And I haven't sat my coach or anything. <laughs> I should say for this episode that we've been brilliantly assisted by one of our backers, guest editor for this podcast, Joseph Barreto. Um, And honestly, Joseph's input into this, his questions, his recollections, um, his kind of debate points have been have been very informative and really provided a great framework for the podcast. Um, So we're very grateful for that. And I think, Joseph, that we will cover cover all the points that that you've raised hopefully um we we offered kind of a, a short list of options for for tennis relived and joseph selected uh 1991 in the final david punched the air i mean david Sorry. says the options were presented i don't know if they were 1991 and 1991 but anyway they were but i was certainly joseph went that for, one. he went for 1991 um and he actually had his his story of why he chose Curry, if you just allow me to, to go into it very quickly, is so good, David, and you will love it. Um, because the first professional tennis match that he ever saw was Jim Courier against Emilio Sanchez at the US Open in 1991. A, a very unremarkable match by the sounds of it. Courier won very, very easily. But it was the match that followed on from Aaron Crickstein against Jimmy Connors. The match. The match that turned around lost law um, and he had to queue to get into the stadium because uh, even though he had tickets because that Crickstein and Connors match was holding holding things up so they were sort of queuing at the gates wanting to know what was going on somebody near him had a sort of you know an old wireless TV so they were trying to 
you know, get real time updates on what was going on in the match. And then they they got let in and, you know, after the Lord Mayor's show, he got to see Courier destroying Sanchez. But he said it was still still a brilliant experience. He said, even from the nosebleed seats, I could feel the, those forehands whiz by. This was the French Open champion. And I was seeing him play glorious tennis in person. I was in heaven. So spoiler alert, by the US Open 1991, Jim Courier is French Open champion. Because the tournament that we're covering in in detail for this French Open Relived episode is Jim Courier's first Grand Slam title. It was his first Grand Slam final. He was up against his rival, his old roommate from the Boletari Academy, Andre Agassi, who was also going for a first Grand Slam title. But very contrastingly, it was his third Grand Slam final. They were, despite being separated by only just over a year in age, five places in the the seeding spots. It, It felt like they were at quite different stages of their careers and their lives at that stage. Obviously, completely different characters um and i i've spent i've spent a lot of my week because i watched it twice now watching the love means nothing documentary about nick bollicieri which focuses very much on andre agassi and the relationship between agassi and bollicieri which is fascinating um but of course a, a big part of the fabric of that story is how jim courier fits into it all and understanding that background and that backdrop is so crucial to understanding why Jim Courier became a Grand Slam champion, isn't it? Because a lot of people look at his game and think it doesn't quite add up that he became the champion he did. And I think that that background, that rivalry, all of that is a huge part of the jigsaw. Yeah, it's one of the great unknowns as to what would have happened if he had stayed under the wing of Nick Boletari at this time. If Boletari had sort of chosen Korea ahead of Agassi rather than the other way around, what would have ended up happening? Because he was a he was a ball basher, really, Korea in those years. And I think the first time I ever saw him play was the year before at the French Open against Andre Agassi in the fourth round. And Agassi dismissed him in straight sets. And it was... It was basically two players who played the same way. It's just that Agassi had a bit better talent, a bit more talent, a bit better high hand-eye coordination. And Courier was just—it was like Courier was playing the wall, and you can't beat the wall, no matter how hard and well you hit the ball. And um, and so, yeah, it's it's that parallel universe, isn't it? That sliding doors moment, which uh, which we'll never know what would have happened. Um, but but you're right. I think uh, it all stems back from those formative years. It's so funny, Matt. I don't know whether you you feel this, but I've only ever known Nick Bollettieri as a really old man, a kind of almost lovable rogue type caricature character. And going back and reading about his involvement in the careers of these young, particularly American players in the nineties, and obviously in particular Andre Agassi's, it it's like opening a door on a whole new world and a whole different person to to the Nick Bolletieri who yeah has kind of formed a bit of a caricature now when I hear Nick Bolletieri's name I hear Mary Carrillo yes. doing her <laughs> eye of the tiger nose of the elephant impersonation um but 
I think that's probably a bit misleading. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's what I hear as well. And that's terrible because he's such an influential figure in tennis. He's a Hall of Famer. He's uh, he's a very important part of this story, an important part of so many players' story. And what I also find fascinating about this period of time and the fact that we're doing this podcast now in a week, which is one of the f- few weeks we've had now in a row, where there's no American man in the top 30 of the ATP singles rankings, first time it's happened since 1973. We're going back now to a period in in these early 90s where there were seven, eight American men in the top 20. And what a a different time it was and what, what rivalries they had between each other and what a fascinating time it must have been to be an American tennis fan. And I, I knew that both Jim Courier and Andre Agassi were voluntary made, so to speak, but I hadn't put two and two together and really read up on the rivalry that those two had with each other because of their upbringing through Boletieri Academy. I hadn't twigged that there was a little bit of tension there between them. Um, I, I sort of mm. assumed they were just peers, but actually there's a, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's something we'll be going into in quite some detail. Let's hear first from Mary Carrillo, who knew and knows the Nick Bolletieri Academy very well. I used to uh, travel up to Nick Bolletieri's a lot uh, back in the day. He's only a couple of hours north of where I live in Florida. And I just remember that whole squad, that whole ball club full of Andre Agassi and David Wheaton and Jim Courier and a lot. And so I, I remember watching Jim. You know, the thing is, when at Boletari's now the IMG Academy, you wanted to be on court one. You wanted to get to Nick's court so he could get his eyes on you, you know. And the best part of a lot of these academies, David, is you get the kids get to see what else is out there. I mean, there's kids from all over the world with different physicalities, different work ethics, different senses of desperation to be great, you know, kids whose moms hock their tap shoes to get them there you know <laughs> there's a bit of a uh, if you've ever read the, the the book the lord of the flies i mean that there was sort of that atmosphere around it and jim was roommates with andre and and jim wanted to show nick what he had and you know obviously andre agassi's talents were leaking out his sides um so jim really wanted to get on on nick's court and that was a big big thing and you know, Nick gave him a scholarship when 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 Jim Courier's mom dropped him off at Boletari's for the first time. He said to Nick, you know, you've got to fix his backhand. Uh, yeah, at the time, especially, Jim had this, uh, this backhand that was strangled by a baseball grip. You know, I mean, it was very, he didn't have a lot of reach with it and he couldn't get under the ball well and there wasn't too much he could do with it. So months later, Jim's mom came back to Boletari's and said, how's his backhand? <laughs> and Nick said, ah, the hell with his backhand, yeah, yeah. We're just going to make him run around and hit forehands. Like, that, was, <laughs> that was the solution. <laughs> um, so anyway, but obviously the kid was very, very good. Uh, winning back-to-back Orange Bowls, which hadn't been done since Bjorn Borg did that in, you know, when he was 15 and 16. So obviously... Courier knew his way around a, a clay court. But the interesting moment was when Jim decided to leave Boletari's, wasn't it? 
you know. Um, I think he'd always kind of felt like he was a second fiddle to Andre. And Nick spent a hell of a lot of time on Agassiz's game. And I think, you know, Jim's real smart um, mentally and emotionally. And, you know, every breakthrough requires a break with, you know. And I think going from a comfort zone to a discomfort zone at a young age is a big thing. And we saw, look, we saw Jim Brady do that, right, by moving to Germany to train with her coach. Uh, and look how much better she's gotten in the last year. But I think uh, Jim was really smart to to get Jose Higueras and Brad Stein um, because they really taught him how to play. You know, if, if your only tool is a hammer, you see every problem as a nail. You know, sometimes you need a wrench, you need a screwdriver, you need some pliers, you know, and Jim certainly knew how to hit balls and God knows he knew how to compete. But they really taught him how to play, you know, to see the whole court, how to construct points and attack and defend and not just grind. You know, um, Jose said about him that he only had one gear, you know, um, that he was either tense or intense and that there's such a big difference between those two. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, I remember Jim and I think he, frankly, from the time he was pretty young throughout most of his career, a lot of his career, he had a real chip on his shoulder, didn't he? And that line is so interesting because I think it's a defining feature of so many great champions the the chip on the shoulder and I I think Nick Bolletieri was was largely responsible for it you know in in that documentary he's he's pretty frank in a kind of I've let it go I don't hold the grudge anymore way he's very very frank um, about the evolution of his feelings and his relationship career with Nick Bolletieri he you know people in that documentary said there was no doubt in anyone's mind at the academy that Andre would be the first one to win a slam. His talent just bedazzled everybody by the sounds of things. And it made them overlook Jim Courier, I think. Um, you know, Jim Courier says that Agassi was the chosen son over me. And, you know, he, Bulletary did form these parental type relationships with with some of the the players at his academy his chosen ones and that's extremely controversial I'd, I'd definitely advise you to go and watch that documentary it's available on sky at the moment if you want a deeper dive on that because you know it's not a black and white situation um but yeah it it, it felt it feels to me reading up on it that it really didn't matter what courier did he he was never going to win the battle for Bolletieri's affections over Andre Agassi. And that came to a head at the French Open a year or two earlier when they played each other and Nick Bolletieri sat in Andre Agassi's support team box and, and made it clear to the world. And, and Jim could not believe it. He could not believe that he was playing a match and his effectively his coach or his the guy who's who's reared him as a player is is picking sides visibly uh, and and publicly and that's what happened and and that chip on the shoulder that Mary refers to that drove him on and that drove him in a, di- a different direction to the coaches that she references Jose Higueras and ultimately Brad Stein as well. Mm. He he said in that 
documentary that he went into that third round match with Agassi in 1989. He described it as a seminal moment in the Academy's arc. He said, I went into that match. I was a company man. I was wearing the Boletari Academy sweatshirt and T-shirt, feeling like one of the Yankees of the tennis world. But then he said, Nick was no more than 10 feet away from me in Andre's box. I could feel his presence. It pissed me off to no end. I thought I was part of Team Boletari up to that point, but he had chosen another son over me. There was fuel there, anger, rage, and that was because of what Nick was doing. For me, our relationship was severed that day. I was gone. It's powerful, isn't it? It says Mm. everything. I mean, you can... He's always been a simmering presence, Jim Courier, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more as this goes on and, and understand the presence he has. But there's a there's such a strong courage of his own convictions and determination. It, I, I find his determination quite frightening. So I can't imagine what it would be like to be an, an opponent of his. Mm. Yeah. So the relationship with Nick Bollicieri at that stage is severed for Jim Courier. It's definitely... It's a clean cut. It's it's an emotional wrench, clearly, but it's a very clean cut moment in Jim Courier's mind. And as we've heard from Mary, he ends up meeting and working with a coaching duo in Brad Stein and Jose Higueras, both of whom David has spoken to for this episode, by the way. Um, and they were instrumental in his career, weren't they, David? hugely yeah they um they they taught him how to how to play really in a different way and and added to to what he got um i think uh i think brad stein said that they they taught him the importance of a, of a sliced backhand for instance and and how to employ it um and just yeah just just made him see things things differently mm Let's hear from Mary Carrillo a, a little more on her take on how Korea transformed his game with the help of those two coaches. Look, no one's ever drowned in their own sweat, uh, and certainly not Jim Courier. He was never afraid to work, but a lot of what he was doing, he wasn't. He wasn't really uh, understanding, you know, how to use the best of his own game. And how to see the deficiencies in other players' game, and and just, mm-hmm. and I mean, Higueras has, you know, Higueras taught Michael Chang how to win the French Open too, and uh, neither Michael Chang nor Jim Courier's best surface was clay; their best surface was hard courts, and you know, in on clay especially European red clay, you have to build points brick by brick, <laughs> um, and. I think Higueras was able to, more than anything, teach Jim how to use his game, his strengths more efficiently, you know? I mean, you didn't just have to grind. It didn't have to be trench warfare, you know? You had to you had to figure out what you were trying to do out there and how you make the guy on the other side of the net uncomfortable. What kind of points you want to play? What kind of patterns do you want to establish? And I, I, I think Higueras, who is... He's so soft-spoken and so quiet, but so thoughtful about the player he's looking at up and down, you know, uh, north to south. And and Jim, again, he was certainly willing to put himself out there and to give everything he had. But sometimes, that if you're if you're a bit rudderless, 
it doesn't really matter how hard you play if you're playing the wrong way. So I think it was a, a real education. I, I think until Higueras got hold of Jim, he was Jim knew how to hit the ball, God the God knows. But he he was just grinding. You know, he wasn't seeing the whole court. And Higueras taught him how to do that. Uh, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty important development in somebody's in somebody's career. When all of a sudden you know how to you have more tools in your toolbox and you know when to use them. And and I think that's what Jose did. And then Brad traveled with Jim a lot. You know, Jose, there got there came a point when Jose had other responsibilities and stuff and, and then Brad stepped in and and picked right up on all that stuff. And I I I think what Jim did, uh, which is what a, when you're truly professional, that's what you, you know, you decide, all right, who am I going to have in my row, my rowboat? <laughs> who's, who's, you know, and sometimes you have to throw overboard the excess, you know, sometimes it's, you know, mom, dad, I love you, but you're getting out on the shore and you're heading home. You know, you need, you need to keep it light and you need ballast. And if you're the only person rowing, you're going in circles. <laughs> I think, I think Jim, in choosing the people around him, on and off the court, frankly, um, he got the best out of himself. Oh, hello, rowboat analogy. We'll be using I that again. I wonder where she got that from. <laughs> <laughs> Mary knows her audience. <laughs> um, Matt, obviously, you weren't weren't alive at the time of the the golden career years, but. But we've both watched a lot of his a lot of his tennis on YouTube this week, obviously in particular that nineteen ninety one final. The the lazy kind of classic analysis of Jim Currier's tennis is that he didn't have any natural talent. It was all everything he achieved was down to hard work, becoming a physical animal, being a competitor, being a competitor, being a grinder. Um, and one of the points that Joseph, our guest editor, has, has picked up on is the what he considers to be a, a false hard work versus talent dichotomy um, that, that Jim Courier actually ended up kind of laying bare um, and, and proving to be false in his opinion. Um, what are your impressions of the Jim Courier game watching it now? Hmm. I read Jim Courier's transcript of a press conference when I think it was announced that he was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he and he said that line, you can't take a donkey to the derby. And he sort of broke down that, that narrative that had existed of him just getting to the top based on hard work. And he said, first of all, hard work is a talent. And second of all, you, you have to have something in your game to build on and work from. And I, I really think that the comparisons with Agassi it sounds like a, probably one of the reasons why his natural talent, which was clearly there, was overlooked, perhaps. Um, looking at his game now, I always think when I watch Jim Courier footage, he feels like a really modern player, actually. The way he is shifting round his backhand to hit inside-out forehands. Maybe David can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that he was one of the first players to really do that. And it's it's such a weapon in his game. And we take it for granted now. Players do that all the time. But in the commentary on this match, the commentators, Bud Collins, I think, even came up with that with that turn of phrase, the backside boogie. 
that Jim that Jim Courier used to do to get out the way of his backhand and hit forehands instead. They're really picking up on it and commenting on it. And by this 91 final, Jim Courier has also developed a slice backhand, as, as David said. David had a really interesting chat with Brad Stein about that. That was one of the things that Higueras and Brad Stein really committed to with Jim Courier. They said they would go out and hit slice backhands every single day whether Jim Courier had played, whether he'd won, whether he'd lost, they would make sure to work on that shot because Courier had this funky backhand that was fine if he was attacking the ball, but if he was defending, he couldn't do it. And and there was a there was a playbook that had developed of how to beat Jim Courier. You would attack that backhand and try and get him to defend off it, and he couldn't do it. So they had to develop this slice. And Brad Stein tells this story about when Courier lost in the 91 Australian Open to Stefan Edberg, a five-setter, really tight match. They head back out to the practice courts and Brad Gilbert spots them and says, what are you doing? You've just played. Why are you going on to a practice court? And he'd never seen anyone do that, having lost a five-setter. That was the that was the hard work that Jim was putting in on, on his backhand side and Higueras, Stein committed to it. And by the time he gets to this 91 French Open you, you can tell he's got lots more to his game than just being a ball basher. It's quite, it's actually quite an impressive game. Mm. It, he's he's top ten by that point. He went into that French Open, seeded ninth. He'd won the Sunshine Double, Indian Wells and Miami. Broke the top ten in so doing. He was the first person to win the Sunshine Double. I don't think that term had even been coined yet. <laughs> the creator of the mm. Sunshine Double, no less. And he beat and he beat Agassi along the way. I think. Mm. is significant. I read that he beat Agassi, I think, from a set down at Indian Wells. And he said after that match, that was the first time he really felt like the work he was doing with Higueras and Stein was really paying off. He said, that was the first match I won with my head. And he was now able to hit the ball and think on the court as well. So that's, I think that's an important moment in, in Courier's career. So he heads to the European clay courts and I think he's he's established in his own mind that he can play on clay. I don't think he has the big American fear of clay that that is is typical of uh of young Americans coming through just, you know, lack of time spent on the surface as much as anything else. So he's riding high, he heads on to the clay courts of Europe. And there's a match against Andrei Cherkasov in Rome. Um, he's losing the match and he suddenly shouts out of nowhere, I'm nine in the world, I'm 21 years old. I mean, he's basically narrating tennis relived for us. I'm nine in the world, I'm 21 years old, and I'm so unhappy. And according to Brad Stein, who we're going to hear from now, that was a moment that had been brewing for a while. As much as for everyone watching, it was... And out of the blue declaration, he says it had been brewing for a while. And here are his recollections of a of what he thinks is an extremely pivotal moment of a lost career suffered in Hamburg of that year, one of one of the French Open warm up events. He actually lost first round in Hamburg to Horatio de la Pena. And I always remember after the match with de la Pena, he said to me, he goes, well, this kind of gives you an idea of what my chances are at the French Open. And uh, obviously, conditions were much different in, in Hamburg. And then we went to Rome, and uh, he struggled through his first two rounds in Rome. Really wasn't playing particularly well. And um, 
and then lost that match to Cherkizov, which I, I always remember extremely well. And Jose and I, as we were walking back, Jose was in Rome that year. So as we were walking back from, from the stands, uh, we got to the locker room and Jim had already left the locker room, wasn't there, didn't wait for us or anything. And as I said earlier, I had come from collegiate tennis and, and in college tennis, one of the things that's nice is that it's a very autocratic society in college tennis. The coach is really the, the, uh, the king, the czar of, of what's going on with the team. And, you know, players don't do stuff like that. You don't, you don't leave the locker room without talking to your coach and, and those kind of things. And I was kind of approaching it from that mentality a little bit still. And so I was a little bit irritated and, and angry at the fact that Jim had left without speaking to us. And, um, so I actually kind of searched him out and found him upstairs in the parking lot. Um, you know, he had a racket in his hand and, and I kind of called out to him from little ways and, and, uh, he turned and saw me and he basically said, you know, he kind of waved me off and said, not now. And, um, and I looked at him as I kept walking towards him and I said, look, if you don't want to talk to me now, then don't expect me to be around when you want to talk. And he kind of perked up looking at me, you know, like a little bit shocked. Um, and, uh, and I ended up walking straight up to him and we had quite a confrontational, uh, number of moments there. I'm not even sure how long it lasted. I think we were probably there for a good 20 minutes or half an hour. Uh, at one point I actually grabbed him by the collar of his shirt and pulled him in very close to me and was like kind of right in his face. Um, and basically told him that if he was uncomfortable with the number next to his name, that we should just fly back to the States and he could take a few weeks off and let his ranking drop back until there were two digits next to it. And, uh, and then we could come back and play. And it was, um, I think something that was very meaningful, uh, for Jim. I think it was something that kind of snapped him out of that, that moment and that situation that he was in the comments that he made on the court, like you're talking about. And, um, it's funny. I, I, uh, I messaged him a few years ago, probably six years ago now. I was having a little bit of a existential crisis myself, you know, just just uh, trying to figure out where I was fitting in and everything. And I messaged Jim and I said, I said, Jimbo, you know, did my uh, did my being with you during the time that we spent together make a difference in your ability to to be number one in the world? And he texted me back in about five minutes and he said, absolutely. If you don't call me out in Rome. I don't think there's any way I win the French Open two weeks later. Sliding doors tennis. Yeah, it, it makes you, he told that story so well. I felt like mm. I was there. I, I think anybody who's Catherine, you and I have been lucky enough to go to the Rome tournament and know the layout and imagine where where this is all taking place and. Um, oh, I've wandered lost around that parking lot. <laughs> hot, steamy times, yeah. May conditions and a hot, steamy Jim Courier coming off a court having lost is not somebody I would have enjoyed going up to personally. And, and I had to do it a number of times in my job as a as an ATP communications manager. And I tell you, it's, it's intimidating. And you can tell Brad had just decided enough. I'm not having that. And, um, and I've, I just found that really... Really fascinating to to see how Brad got through to him in that moment because I mean look it it, it seems to have made all the difference and yet at the time going into that French Open and and obviously I didn't follow the sport to the degree I do now I kind of discovered it mid French Open but nobody was talking about Jim Courier nobody 
He was not a favourite for the title. It was all about Agassi and Becker and Edberg. That was it. Jim Courier, who's who's he? Mm. Mm. Edberg reached the quarterfinals. Becker, the semis. He was beaten by Agassi in the semi-finals. Um, Lendl was the third seed. He he withdrew ahead of the tournament with a wrist injury. Agassi's the fourth seed, and Jim Courier is down at ninth seed behind Guy Forget, Pete Sampras, Sergi Bruguera, Goran Ivanišević. He's he's there, but he's not being talked about. He has a he has a good opening couple of rounds. No sets dropped. Derek Rostanio first up, then Wayne Ferreira, straight set, plain sailing. Then he comes up against Magnus Larsson in the third round and it's anything but plain sailing. Here are Brad Stein's recollections of that third round meeting. Magnus Larsson was a very dangerous player with a really big serve and a big forehand and and, um, and Jim was, he was struggling in that match and I'll always remember my wife and my uh, my one-year-old daughter at that time, our, I have three kids, but at that time we only had the one, had come over and were there at the French, and they were watching the match. And and late in the fourth set, uh, my daughter, who was, uh, as I said, one year old, started crying in the stands. And and Jim actually looked over as she was crying, and he said, I know exactly how you feel, Caitlin. And it actually really lightened the moment. And, and I would bet you a million dollars that if you if you brought that up with Jim and talked to him about that, he would say, yeah, that moment made a big difference in that match because I was so kind of frustrated and irritated with how I was playing in the moment and not feeling very good. And that moment just lightened everything up and kind of changed everything. And he became more relaxed and actually took over the match and got control of the match, you know, and ended up winning relatively comfortably in the fifth set. And um, I think it was 6-2 in the fifth. And so that match always stood out to me. One, because obviously it was a, you know, it was a third round match that went five sets and he, he was, he was very close to losing that match. And then two, obviously, because my daughter had a great effect on the outcome, I think. I love that story. <laughs> I really love that story. So, so he, he battles through against Magnus Larsson, five sets. Then he takes out countryman Todd Martin in straights. Then it's Stefan Edberg, the top seed in the quarterfinals he takes care of him in in four sets I remember watching that because Ooh. back then Edberg really was the favorite for the title really I I would say even though he was not a clay court specialist he was a serve volleyer but he'd been in the final against um Michael Chang a couple of years before and yeah it just felt like he he was the man to beat in in so many ways and and so watching that was the moment that I thought crikey this this guy Courier is 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 better than I thought. That's that was the moment that I thought that because I'd seen him a year before, and you could not have credited that that player would have been able to pull off this win. Wow! Then he beats Michael Stieg, the twelfth seed in the semi-finals in four sets, and then he's facing Andre Agassi, his roommate, his rival, his old friend in the final. Agassi's beaten Boris Becker in the semis. He's beaten Jacob. Hlasek Jakob Hlasek Oh, okay. yeah, okay, that guy <laughs> And Anything on him for Hlasek fans? Uh, yeah, he was actually the player that Jim Courier beat in the final rubber 
of the Davis Cup final of 1992 when uh, the US faced Switzerland in a pre-Roger Federer era and Mark Rosse, the six foot seven inch Swiss player was was a a dangerous player back then um and yeah Cur- the the Davis Cup team was Courier Agassi playing singles John McEnroe and Pete Sampras playing doubles together Imagine wow. that as your, as your four-man <laughs> team. This was in America. This is John, all off the top of your head, isn't it, David? Ma- yeah, McEnroe <laughs> describes this in his autobiography in, in great detail because I know that he was going through his divorce, I think, or his breakup with Tatum O'Neill at the time. So he'd be very emotional. And he said, we, we played this doubles match, me and Pete, and won it. And when we won it on match point, Pete told me he loves me. And... Um, and he ne- he's never forgotten that. Um, and then Courier, having won the deciding rubber, takes the, the Stars and Stripes flag from somebody in the crowd and runs all the way around the court, waving it while the crowds are going mad. And poor old Jakob Lasek, he sat on his own in his seat. But now he's having his moment in the tennis relived sun. <laughs> so it's all OK for Jakob Lasek and Jakob Lasek fans who we who we don't want to leave disappointed. So, Jim Courier against Andre Agassi, the ninth seed against the fourth, going into the 1991 French Open final. Is it fair to say, David, that despite only those five spots difference in the seedings, Agassi is the heavy favourite? He's reached two Grand Slam finals before. He reached the French Open final the year before and in most people's eyes ought to have won it. Um, but for a rain delay, um, more yeah. more on rain delays later. Whereas Jim Courier, there's maybe a feeling that either if he is going to have a time, the time isn't quite now, yeah. or he's perhaps even overachieved a little bit. I would to, say that. To reach I, the I, final. I would say there wasn't great anticipation ahead of this final, really, as a contest, because the assumption was that, that Agassi wins it. Now, even, and I find that slightly strange when you consider that Courier had had a win against Agassi earlier that year, but the feeling was, look, Agassi was playing lights out tennis at this point. He's beaten Boris Becker. He's he's just hitting the ball so sweetly, and you f- it felt like a question of when, not if, that he wins the Grand Slam title. He's the one of the group that was expected to do it first, and yet. Michael Chang had come along and done it in 1989. Pete Sampras had beaten, thrashed Agassi in the final of the US Open, really out of the blue the year before in 1990. So you've you've then got Agassi, right? It's Agassi's turn. He's lost this final to Andres Gomez the year before, which was a huge shock, and the Sampras won. And he didn't play Wimbledon back then. He played his first Wimbledon uh, for four years he'd, he'd had three or four years when he was perfectly fit and he just didn't want to play because he was objecting to the all-white rule of clothing so he didn't play till a couple of weeks after this match we're talking about but he goes into this final as the superstar he's the one everybody knows he's front page news not just back page news and Jim Courier is a bit of a nobody in the eyes of of anybody outside strict tennis circles and even I think for those that followed the game very closely the view was that Agassi, they do similar things, but Agassi's just better. So he's going to win. And I find it fascinating, not only did he not play Wimbledon Agassi, he didn't play the Australian Open then either. So it's actually not just his third Grand Slam final, it's actually the third Grand Slam in a row where he's reached the final because he played the 90 French Open, didn't play Wimbledon, 
played the US Open in 90, didn't play the Australian Open in 91, and now he's back in the final at the French Open in 91. Like, everything's surely saying this is Agassi's time ahead of Courier. But did... Was there a sense that Agassi couldn't win these big matches, or did it take this match for that to develop? Yeah, I, I would say that this is the match that really cemented that. Yes, there was shock when he didn't beat Gomez, but that was viewed as a bit of a one-off. The way Sampras beat him was just incredible lights-out tennis from from this kid who kind of had nothing to lose, it felt. But this is the match, he, and he'd shown the form that you thought, yeah, Agassi won't lose this one. And he comes into this, and personally, as somebody who was looking forward to this match immensely... I thought there was no possible result other than an Andre Agassi victory. So some things haven't changed. (laughs) Well, I can tell you, David, that Andre Agassi at the time agreed with you. He talks about this in his autobiography, Open. This is what he had to say about how he felt going into that final. He said, I I batter, it's all in in the present tense for anyone that hasn't, hasn't read the autobiography. At the 1991 French Open, I batter my way through six rounds and reach the final my third slam final. I'm facing Courier and I'm favoured. Everyone says I'll beat him. I say I'll beat him. I need to beat him. I can't imagine what it would feel like to make three slam finals in a row and not win. The good news is I know how to beat Courier. I beat him just last year at the same tournament. The bad news is it's personal, which makes me tight. We began in the same place, in the same barracks at the Bulletary Academy, our bunk beds a few feet apart. I was so much better than Courier, so much more favoured by Nick, that losing to him in the final of a slam will feel like the hare losing to the tortoise. Bad enough that Chang has won a slam before me and Pete, but Courier too, I can't let that happen. <laughs> Shame. Throwing them all under the bus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe Courier and Agassi get on so well these days. <laughs> Maybe Courier hasn't read it. <laughs> I don't know. But 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 then I think Courier now recognises that all of that dynamic is part of what made him great. The fact that Agassi went into that final thinking, this is mine to win. The fact that he was not the favoured son by Nick Boletieri. He said it himself. He used it as fuel. So... I think he's reflective and smart and self-aware enough, Jim Courier, that as painful as that was at the time, he can he can see the big picture. I doubt he was seeing the picture, though, at 6-3, 3-1 down in that match. Fuel or not, he was being comprehensively outplayed by Agassi, who was just doing what Agassi does, just standing up on that baseline, taking the ball early, which is actually what Curry is trying to do. But I guess he's just better at it. There's no one better in the world. There might still not have been anyone better in the world at at essentially half volleying from the baseline. And he's just taking control of every rally. I think your analysis there is absolutely spot on. And I think it's what what I I loved and was drawn to at that time because it was new tennis to me. Uh, I mean, obviously the sport to some degree was, but I, I'd grown up watching Wimbledon. I'd never seen somebody... I'd seen players play from the baseline, the few bits of French Open coverage that I'd seen, but I'd never seen somebody play that aggressive tennis from the baseline where they're both trying to not give any ground and half folly in Agassi's case, and and have this sort of slap inside-out forehand 
that Courier had, where he's hitting cross-court forehands, but the other way, from his backhand corner, using his forehand. Nobody did that at all, to the degree that he did it. And I just found it, I don't know what it was, it was like like watching a computer game. I was totally taken by it. Um, but it's really interesting watching it now, and seeing how, it, in that first set and a half, it just wasn't working for Courier. There was a guy who was just better at it than him, and he would eventually, in the year, next couple of years, turn that around and be able to do it back to Agassi. But at that point, no. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in, being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times. Well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. But then the rain starts to fall. In fact, Joseph has uh, is, um, suggested, suggested to us uh, that we could do a, a sliding doors rain delays that that changed the course of tennis history edition. So pop that on the potential agenda <laughs> Und, under best of Briggs under episode <laughs> ideas. Um, and we there are quite a lot of accounts, aren't there? There's so so often rain delays and what really goes on in the locker rooms. It's all very mysterious, and we we're left to kind of paint our own imaginary picture of what might be going on. But we have some quite vivid pictures being painted for us in various different recollections of what that locker room was like in that rain delay. Both of them pacing around, Nick Bolateri there with Andre Agassi in the same room as as Jim Courier, but Courier's obviously with Jose Higueras. And, and very famously, Agassi says that the only advice that Nick Bolateri gave to him in that rain delay was to keep doing what you're doing because you're 6-3-3-1 up, so just keep doing it. And then 
Bolantieri goes out to do a TV interview. And I'm, I, we'll never know if that was something that Agassi was annoyed about at the time. But he certainly, given everything that transpired later between them, a, a very acrimonious split in their relationship, um, later went on to express some displeasure with how that rain delay played out. Because while Agassi stuck to his guns, Courier made it a game of chess and made significant tactical adjustments that altered the course of tennis history and certainly his career and, as he says, his life. What was it like, David? How, When they came out from that rain delay, how soon was it evident that this was a different match? I I would say, I mean, I think immediately Agassi has break points after the rain delay, which he doesn't take. But Courier has already made these adjustments. He's standing way back and giving himself more time on the return and an employing the tactics he's been given and think and he and he holds on to his serve and then immediately breaks again so at three all you know you know how that feels occasionally sometimes where you get Do this I? pang of excitement <laughs> watching a match that looks like it's going relentlessly and inevitably one way and then there's just a little flash of hope for the other guy or the other mm. woman the other the, the other player and you you as as somebody who doesn't mind who's going to win, you want to have a match, and that was the flicker, that was the moment, and and the way it transpired, it's quite interesting listening to the the narrated tale that Jim Courier has of his own final. There's a five minute video that they've put on the Running Garros website, and and he describes it in, in, in real really interesting terms about the the fluctuations because he he got that set on the board. Um, and it's and it's become a match by this time. The, the the sets are not close. It's 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 a close match overall because it's it's a five setter. But the sets are one sided, all of them really, um, until until the fifth one. Um, Agassi wins the third. But but it's just so fascinating the way he describes how when once he's got the break in the fourth courier, Agassi basically just chucks it away and says, right, I'll just I'll just save my energy for the fifth and and i think i, I read it again i think in that transcript you described matt of the hall of fame from courier he describes how they'd often they'd often play these matches on the bolletieri court and the moment agassi went to break down he'd just walk off the court you know he just wouldn't he wouldn't so he would never give you the satisfaction of actually winning and la- later in agassi's career when he'd sort of reinvented himself, you wouldn't see that. You would see him dig in and fight and win. And I've heard Jim Courier talk about how, to him, Agassi was just the guy he used to share a room with. Okay, he had all this history, but he didn't see Agassi as this towering, transcendent tennis star that everyone viewed him as. So he was aware of Agassi's weaknesses. And one of those weaknesses at the time was chucking away that fourth set and that is such a big moment Agassi's Agassi has wrestled back control of this match after this big tactical shift that Jim Courier has made to get back on track Agassi has control he's up two sets to one he's countered that tactical shift that Courier has employed so for them for him to I think he loses something like 12 of the first 13 points of that fourth set does Agassi and it just allows Courier back into the match and then it all heads to this fifth set where 
probably for the first time in the match, they're both playing well at the same time. And the fifth set is a classic. I mean, I read I read some reports of, of this match beforehand that this was only an enjoyable match if you like unforced errors. And there are there are a lot of them in the match altogether. It's an incredibly windy... Was it, was it a team's vera of energy? <laughs> I think it was better than that. <laughs> But there's something like over 120 unforced errors in this match. An incredibly windy day. It's hard to play well. But in the fifth set, it's a it's a battle and they are playing well. And it's it's a tremendous watch, the fifth set of this match. Mm. I'm going to narrate for you from Andre Agassi's perspective what happens from the fourth set onwards. Because Agassi's leading by two sets to one. At this stage, Courier, in his own words, he's not panicking because he knows... He can go the distance physically. He knows he's got what it takes in the tank physically if he can just nail the tennis side of things. But this is what Agassi is thinking. As the fourth set opens, I lose 12 of the first 13 points. Am I unravelling or is Courier playing better? I don't know. I'll never know. But I do know that this feeling is familiar, hauntingly familiar. This sense of inevitability, the weightlessness as momentum slips away. Courier wins the set 6-1. In the fifth set, tied for all, he breaks me. Now, all at once, I just want to lose. I can't explain it any other way. In the fourth set, I lost the will, but now I've lost the desire. As certain as I felt about victory at the start of this match, that's how certain I now am of defeat. And I want it. I long for it. I say under my breath, let it be fast. Since losing is death, I'd rather it be fast than slow. Blimey, I've read the book and I'd forgotten that, I must say. Uh, he says, I no longer hear the crowd. I no longer hear my own thoughts, only a white noise between my ears. I can't hear or feel anything except my desire to lose. I drop the 10th and decisive game of the fifth set and congratulate Courier. Friends tell me it's the most desolate look they've ever seen on my face. Afterward, I don't scold myself. I coolly explain it to myself this way. You don't have what it takes to get over the line. You just quit on yourself. You need to quit this game. Well, it's it's just such a fascinating insight into his psychology, his mental health in the moment. Um, I also do... I, re, I hear that and I feel slightly sorry for Jim Career. It feels like mm. you're, you're, tr- you're taking it away from him, really. Mm. When it's, actually, I don't think any of that book is a great read for Jim Career. <laughs> No, um, I just kind of feel like, actually, I mean, you know, they went toe-to-toe. As Matt said, it was a good tennis match. It's not like Agassi lost at six love and didn't turn up at all, is it? It sounds like it's almost like a little voice in his head, maybe, of fear of losing. I mean, he said he wanted to lose. I, Who am I to say that he didn't want to lose? But he didn't look like he wanted to lose. He wasn't tanking it. Um, he was playing hard. Courier was better. They exchange breaks at the end of that fifth set. At three all, Courier hits one of those trademark cross-court forehands from his backhand side to break. But Agassi breaks him straight back to four all. And then there's a point in the four all game. Courier throws up a lob. It's on break point. And Agassi decides to let it bounce. And as he lets it bounce, the wind swirls the ball and he hits a smash right on top of the net and he hits it out. And Courier breaks there for 5-4. So... You know, the way he's described it in his autobiography there, Courier broke me. Well, he did mm. He did kind of break himself on that on that point. 
um, that's it. That's a huge moment in the match. And then Korea, Korea in that final game fascinates me as well. We've heard that story about Brad Stein's daughter in the third round and Jim Courier using it as a moment of lightness. Well, that's that's something Courier talks about in his narration of that final on the Roland Garros website. When he gets to match point, he he sort of smiles and laughs and, and he said that was me trying to make light of it and trying not to be really serious about it. And yet when it comes to match point, he tells himself, make him play, make him play. And he doesn't have to make him play because he hits an ace straight down the tee. And there are these incredible scenes. It's it's, it's a fascinating end to the match. It, it all happens quite mm. quickly. They're quite quick games, but there's so much going on there to watch. Mm. That narration is fascinating, isn't it? Because it 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 so obviously looks forced, that mm. moment of levity from Jim Courier. You know, it looks like a really bad acting you know sort of a, a guy at improv class and he makes fun of himself doesn't mm. he in, yeah in the, exactly the yeah it's 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 brilliant i mean yeah it obviously worked fake it till you make it but it's it's such a sort of weirdly awkward moment at such a such a pivotal time you, you sort of you sort of think of athletes you know we talk a lot about it in the moment you've got to be in the moment you've got to stay present or sort of taking yourself out of your body and performing like sort of a little drama is is sort of the opposite of that isn't it it's uh, i find the psychology fascinating um and it's for a man winning his first grand slam title it's a happy celebration but it's not it's not raucous and over the top I don't think it's quite it's quite it's quite a cool celebration I think I don't know he falls on his back caked yeah, in I think clay it's pretty, um, I think it's so? pretty okay. he Jump. gets up to go to the net very quickly I guess that's out of respect for Agassi and, I think and their history to together do, I mean I think that's one of the things is that one of the things he says in that narration at the end is this is the moment this is the making of me nobody mm. can ever take away Grand Slam champion Jim Courier from me now um, so I think I think there's there's a there's a, probably a bit of panic. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do when you win a Grand Slam? <laughs> Never done it before. So yeah, he falls flat on his back. I always remember seeing the 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 orange clay caked all over his pristine, pretty pristine white shirt. He'd, he'd also got this orange stained white cap, which he'd been wearing for weeks apparently. Yeah, he just it was believed, in the right state. That yeah, hat. He was in a hasn't he got another state. one? He said it was lucky or something. Yeah, mm. um, but. I always think it, that the contrast of, of Agassi and his really signature fluorescent purple and grey outfit with the pink lycra shorts underneath, etc., against the guy in the white outfit who's suddenly got a bit of his own flashes of colour all over him because the clay's all caked over his back. It, it, it always stayed with me. Um but yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible moment, really. At, at the time, and and one when you're watching it live, it feels like time is standing still because you can't really believe this is happening. Is this is happening? Jim Courier is. I was as shocked as he was. Jim Courier is a Grand Slam champion. So, did you think in that moment, and did the tennis world think, flash in the pan, Grand Slam title? Did you? Uh, probably, ha- yeah. How unexpected was what was to follow? Oh, very From unexpected. Korea. Very unexpected for me, at least. Um, it, we we it went on to the U.S. Open, and he he got to the final of the U.S. Open, beat Jimmy Connors in that incredible run year, um, but then faced Stefan Edberg in the final and got utterly steamrolled by one of the best performances in a Grand Slam final I've ever seen. 
Um, Edberg just didn't let him breathe the way he was he was serving and volleying at him. Um, so that's what I that's the level I thought he was at. Contender won his Grand Slam would be at the sharp end, but he's not going to dominate. Except he did dominate. So he comes out in 92, faces Edberg again, so back-to-back Grand Slam finals, and this time he takes him out. Then goes and defends his French Open title, beats Petr Korda in a pretty one-sided final. In fact, I don't think he lost a set all the way through the championships. He was utterly dominant at that time, and came into Wimbledon with two Grand Slam titles under his belt. Um, ended up losing in the third round to Andrei Olhovsky, uh, a proper grass court oh. specialist from Hello. Russia. Who, Do we have anything else on, on Olhovsky well, for no, his that, fans? That was his, that was his claim to fame. That was, <laughs> that was at a point when I decided shortly after I'm never going to bet again because I bet on uh, Jim Courier to win Wimbledon, having seen these. You know, I was all sort of, everybody saying to me, oh, Stefan Edberg and, or John McEnroe win Wimbledon, weren't there? I'll say, yeah, but you haven't seen Jim Courier because, you know, those of us that follow the circuit year round uh, know about this guy so he's going to win it and of course he loses in the third round um, and, and actually what you see if, if you look at his results is a bit of a sort of Nadal style tail off at the end of the year he, he, he only ever reached that one US Open final despite his game appearing to be perfect for it because he was winning Australian Opens and French Opens and he would kind of run out of gas a little bit and, and then he went back to the Australian Open joined up with Nike and and developed his first sort of signature kit and I had both shirts which I wore <laughs> please describe al- alternately um they were based on the I think they were based on the Cincinnati Reds baseball team that he was a fan of I think that's right and there were striped he's from Florida isn't he uh, I don't know but he supported this team I think and they were white with black stripes down them and then uh, the Australian Open one that he won in 93 he was wearing it had red shoulders for the sleeves and then when he got to the French Open and won the, and reached the final there it had got green sleeves but it was very much his own signature line nobody else seemed to have them except him and me <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I mean, at that time, although I was wearing his shirt, I was not a fan of his. I was sort of pretty much anybody who played against, I was kind of supporting them. Why did um, you have his shirt? So you, weren't a, you weren't a fan of Agassi. You weren't a fan of Courier. I don't know. Why did you have I, his I, shirt? I, were you in the like David him? Wheaton camp? I didn't like dominant tennis players. I, I liked underdogs. Um, mm. But I liked had, the shirt, Matt, is the answer. I've had an update <laughs> in from David Whitaker, who's obviously been ruminating on it since our phone call couple of hours ago just says i think we probably found jim courier boring particularly compared to agassi <laughs> so i've probably got photos of me in the shirt somewhere i now you've said that you'd better produce them yes. david <laughs> yeah absolutely don't write checks you can't cash david um so that dominance unexpected to to david law and to the rest of the tennis world what was it down to let's hear from courier's other coach jose higueras on what he thinks that dominance was down to he had such an unbelievable work ethic you know you always hear about talent you know and, and how how do, how do you actually rate talent well uh, anybody can hit a tennis ball it's really how you compete that's a, that's for me that's a real talent and together with uh, with hitting the ball well, then I made you a good player. So, so Jim had that determination. He wasn't your typical player on how you hit the ball and all that, but he his determination was a match. And I truly believe he got 100% of, out of his out of his being. 
Uh, I mean, I actually think him and Lender kind of set up two different stages instead of uh, uh, being fit and all that. But Jim was extremely fit when he was at his peak, as Lender was. Um, so all that work behind uh, just reaffirmed him that he actually was that good. Did Did you sense that in the period that he dominated, did was that some in some way due to how he viewed himself within the locker room and other players viewed him within the locker room well yeah for for a few years for a few years he was stronger than anybody uh, he was stronger than anybody physically and he, he was in as good a shape as anybody or better uh and that also uh, that also uh, uh, translate to how people view you uh he was relentless he was a very good competitor He'll play. He'll play the match until the match was over. So, so I think that's how he was viewed. He, he was viewed as a guy that uh, you could beat him, but uh, but you had to uh, to actually uh, really really show up, and he wasn't going to give you any, anything. So, and I think he actually he actually that's how he was viewed for, especially during that time when he was doing so well. You've you've spoken a few times about what how hard he worked. What was his work ethic like compared to others that you worked with? I mean, training-wise, in a sort of training block or something like that? Well, let's put it this way, David. Uh, there are some, in general, uh, I mean, you, I mean I, I'm a little bit old school, meaning that I'm a little bit from the Aussie school, which I, which I believe in, uh, in practices and physical practices and, and uh, not mean practices, obviously. But yes, yes, uh, I think that, that's what you are. Uh, that I mean, you gotta get yourself somewhat uh, uncomfortable in practice that you can actually feel decently comfortable when you are competing out there. So, but but with Jim, for example, uh, it was never enough. It was never enough. I mean, I, I had to yes say no, no, we're not we're not hitting anymore. Uh, that's we, we we had enough. So so that doesn't happen that often. And that was uh, and the same with his conditioning and the same with everything. So. As unexpected as his dominance was, how unexpected was the decline of that dominance, David? Because it was actually, I was quite surprised looking back on the trajectory of Jim Curry's career that his, how condensed his dominance was. His last Grand Slam final was just more than two years after his first. Yeah. I would say it was also a surprise to me, at least as a, as a tennis fan. I did not see that coming at all, particularly after the the ninety three French Open, which again I had a, a bet on and I lost money on because I thought he was going to win the title and and he went all the way to the final and he lost in five sets to Sergio Bruguera. Amazing, amazing win for Bruguera and a guy who just stood up to him toe to toe and beat him at his own game. But if you think about it, he went then on to the Wimbledon final. So it's still happening for him. I mean, he even though he didn't win three Roland Garros titles in a row, he, he came just one match up short, one set short. He gets to the, the Wimbledon final. He beats Stefan Edberg. He's playing Pete Sampras. But if you listen to, uh, as Matt and I have, the the, uh, the full Brad Stein interview that, 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 that I did, Brad says that he feels that Wimbledon final loss really hurt him because he he thought he was going to win and that was Pete's first Wimbledon title that was Pete's second Grand Slam title overall and Sampras won it in four sets and it was on 4th of July 
it was just such a huge moment for Courier. He thought he was going to win, or at least I don't think I think he took the loss at least very hard. And Brad says he 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 started looking for something else in his career, something else to add to his armory, which in trying to add to his his game he almost depleted other elements of it the overall was less effective and uh and and that was certainly brad's view on it and my my view was that yeah how 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 long can you go on playing the way he does um it just seemed as though he he couldn't but it was still a surprise a canister style issue Hmm. as in his his game was i'm fascinated by how some games just age age better than others naturally his game was just one that was always destined not to have longevity probably yeah i, mean, I think there are other examples of it i think Leighton hewitt is one um i think curry had a slightly bigger game than hewitt of course but still there are limitations mm. let's get mary carillo's take on the drop-off in, in Courier's game and his, his success and, and what that was down to. Jim's game wore him out at a, at a certain point, you know, and he, he talks about that he developed a dead arm. There, there came a point where he just couldn't continue. His game was very, very physical, you know, and he liked that. He liked trench warfare. I mean, that's where he wanted to, he wanted to take his opponents down to where he was comfortable and then make it a, that kind of a, a street fight, and Jim knew all the back alleys by then because uh, of Higueras. Um, but, I mean, people came along, didn't they? I mean, that, that was a pretty rich time in tennis where there were a lot of good players playing. And I mean, whether it was Sampras or Agassi or Lendl, I mean, Jim was in the thick of it, wasn't he? Do, do you think there are players in America right now that could be doing something like what Courier managed to do there's always the question mark about how talented jim courier was and yet mm. he got to world number one and he won multiple majors and here you here you are at the moment with no male american in the top 30 yeah. and yet i look at those players and how much different are they some of those players to jim courier in terms of just skill set well you know what when when jim because jim was accused of that more than once uh, that he didn't really have a lot of talent i loved when he when he shut everyone down by saying hard work is a talent. <laughs> and I also think that, again, I, I, I credit Jim with being very smart. Um, not just intellectually, but emotionally smart and aware. I mean, this is a guy from Dade City, Florida. Uh, they grow a lot of oranges there. Uh, they don't, it's not like they got a lot of museums. Uh, it's not, <laughs> I mean, he kind of used to make fun of the town he, he came out of, but he was always so curious, and he wanted to be much more uh, than just a, a banger of tennis balls. And and I mean, I watched I watched him grow in those ways. You know, when he gave his when he won Roland Garros for the second time and gave that speech in French. I mean, a lot of us Americans barely speak English, you know. And <laughs> just this guy laying it out uh, the way he did. It was it, it it was lovely to see. Obviously, he'd had a French girlfriend. And, you know, the story goes that she would put post-its all around the living room uh, with a French word of chair, table, couch, you know. <laughs> but, you know, Jim wanted to 
I, I give a lot of credit to his smarts. If, if there are players who are willing to expand their horizons, and again, I go back to what Jane Brady has done in the last year. That's not just physical work. That is, that's a breakthrough because she was willing to break from something. And I, I mean, Jim, I know how interested he is uh, in so many things. I've still got, I don't know where the hell they are now, but I've still got a couple of CDs that Jim gave me of music he wrote and played in a homemade studio when he was just, he was just, his career was winding down and he had developed a great, a great interest and love for music. I mean, the guy could play the guitar. I mean, he, he, like he was that guy, you know what I mean? So I think if you are willing to break out of where you are and really commit yourself, it really helps to have that kind of intelligence and curiosity uh, apart from any kind of drive and ambition. So, yeah, I mean, it's there for players, you know. That intelligence, both intellectual and emotional, is something that pretty much everyone references when you're talking about Jim Courier, either his tennis career or Jim Courier now as a broadcaster, as an entrepreneur, somebody heavily involved still in the game. P.S. Love the idea of Mary Carrillo with a maker's mark of an evening, just listening to the Jim Courier studio sessions, her, her personal copy. Sticks on some night train afterwards. <laughs> or not. Don't, don't lower the tone, Matt. Um, yeah, I mean, would you, would you have guessed, David that he, he would go on to be this kind of a person? It's, I, I see, I see parallels with Andy Murray and the way we project forward with what he might do post-retirement and our feelings about how he might remain involved in the game and his mind being too curious and too sharp to to just completely take steps back and play golf with the rest of his life. Was he always the kind of character that would have this kind of post-retirement career? Back then, I would have wouldn't have had a clue that that was possible. Just from the oh, outside, you didn't see any any of the twists and turns of Korea's career no, coming. Not not from the outside looking in. Um, one little bit of the the Mary interview that that we haven't heard there is when she describes him as a broadcaster, and she said she describes his first post career introduction to what it's like being on the other side dealing with tennis players trying to get interviews with them trying to get agents to say yes and all this sort of thing and he couldn't believe how hard it was and she just said well yeah that's that's kind of what it's always been like and he and he just stopped and said oh I was kind of a dick wasn't I and she said yep <laughs> and uh, and the thing is I from being a tennis fan before I got involved in tennis I then joined the tour as a communications manager and I'm dealing with him in the late 90s as a as a tennis player and he was frightening I'm telling you I, to go into the locker room and be eyeball to eyeball with him after he's just lost and have to be the one to ask him how long he needs until he goes and does a press conference and tells everybody what he's thinking he stands up from whatever he's doing and he will stare you down and and I I remember him once pranking me by just saying no no way david i'm not doing it no way and i just sort of froze for a few seconds and he goes i'm just kidding 10 minutes 
like this and um and i yeah i mean i kind of i didn't really know what i'd been through i think he probably swore at me as well in the in the in the the first part of that um but when he then retired and i remember this first wimbledon that mary references they were both working for tnt and i was involved in the interview process at the time so i'm in the locker room and i remember him saying to he was like an evangelist for player cooperation and being on tv and doing chat shows and talk shows and trying to get on Letterman and all this. And he was just lecturing me and all my colleagues on the, the promotional side saying, you've got to do this. You've got to get the players on, on these big shows. That's how you get oxygen, you know, and they've got to play along and all this. And I thought, wow, this is a Jim Courier I did not know existed. His eyes had been opened in that moment. And then when he joined the Champions Tour four years later, which which we both worked on, Catherine, Again, he was the easiest player to work with out of everybody. No matter what you asked him to do, he said yes, because he understood the business. He understood what was involved. And to use Mary's word of curiosity, he just had a curiosity about every element of it. And you could tell that he was going to educate himself and find out how it all works, because that's just who he was. I mean, look, I still find him at times really quite difficult. I find him still quite intimidating. And he can go from incredibly charming and and certainly one of the best broadcasters on tennis that I listen to. I love listening to his insight. But I still find him difficult. You know, you don't... He is a hardball negotiator who does things on his own terms. And I kind of respect that, really. But I'm also slightly... Uh, trepidatious when I go up to to speak to him, you know, and that's very rare that I feel like that with with people. Um, so he, he's an interesting set of contradictions. But I'm post career, I'm certainly not surprised at what he's been able to do with his career. We we spoke to um, journalist and broadcaster Richard Evans for the this tennis relived series. We'll be hearing from him in in future Wimbledon relived episodes and and we just touched upon had a had a quick chat about Jim Curry at the end and Richard said I think he should be ATP CEO he was very clear about that he said uh, he thought Jim Curry would would probably shrivel at uh, and recoil at the mere mention of it um but yeah it's an interesting thought isn't it he certainly be I mean He'd be very capable at any job like that, I think. A, because he, he has the respect of people uh, when he speaks. He's been through it. He's been at every element, level of it. And he is just a really intelligent, smart character. Mm, tennis is certainly richer for him still being in it and being involved in it. And it's important. It's important that these guys stick around and, and enrich the sport. So... And it's been it's been a pleasure learning more about Jim Courier. I oh, I say this at the end of every tensory lived episode, don't I? But I thought I knew, you know. I thought I thought I had the basics down: the four Grand Slam titles, the not quite at Wimbledon. Yeah, I I understand the career of Jim Courier, but turns out I didn't. So yeah, it's been a treat. That's two of us, Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know one other thing I remember him saying once is. Uh, I, I, it's too bad I wasn't world number one when I was 31 and not 21 because he 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 was the unknown world number one at the age of 21 he was so he was monosyllabic and unhelpful 
And it just, it, there's so many arcs of lives like that, aren't there? Well, he hadn't been groomed for it. The contrast to, to Agassi, you know, you're telling that story about the Nike deal that he got, David, after he'd become a Grand Slam champion. In the in the Love Means Nothing documentary, you have Agassi sort of casually recounting how I think it's 17, he said Nike Nike came to him and, and Nick Bolcherian said, hey, do you want to turn pro? Maybe before 17, they they persuaded him to turn pro. They said, we'll take care of you if you turn pro. It just all came to Agassi. He was the chosen one and Korea was just there in the shadow, not being groomed for success or or certainly not being groomed for being a world number one and a flag bearer and a and a Grand Slam champion. So I can imagine that it, it did take some adjustment. And even and even after that, Agassi still still was the guy, wasn't he? Obviously he went on to win win Wimbledon in, in ninety two and he remained the the headline hogger of of not just American men's tennis but but tennis. But Courier the Disruptor is um is a very interesting story arc in nineties men's tennis. Um, and it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to be taken back in the David Law tennis time machine. So thank you, David. Uh, yeah, thank you. To, thank you to all of our sources. Thank you to Joseph, our um, guest editor for this episode. Joseph, it really was a great assistance to have your, your thoughts and your notes on the subject of Jim Courier. Thank you to Rosie, our unexpected clerical error mascot for the week. Um, she's she's loving the limelight under Agassiz style. Uh, we've got our mascots. I've got Zeus. David's got Rogue. Matt's got Scouse or Mouse. can't remember what any of us predicted for the week, other than that I almost went for Jessica Pagula, and she had lost by the time the newsletter went out. So bullet swerve. Well, they've all lost. They're, they've all lost. Have we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Two retirements and two losses. Was David's? <laughs> Was David's a retirement? No, one of mine was, and Daryl's no, was. Bog standard loss. Right, okay. Oh, brilliant. Another another tip-top week <laughs> for the tennis podcast predictors. This is why we don't advocate betting, folks. One yeah. of the many reasons. Absolutely. Don't get lost like law. Oh, that was that was off the top of my head, but what a great sort of anti, anti-betting slogan. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for reliving some of tennis's most important moments and figures with us. We'll be back for more of Tennis Relived uh, ahead of Wimbledon. We'll be back with French Open Daily, starting with a French Open preview podcast on Saturday. uh, After the draws, of course, looking ahead to both the men's and women's tournaments. And then from Sunday, it's daily French Open podcasts. We're coming thick and fast at you folks but like a well, like a Jim Courier forehand yeah 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 that one was less good wasn't it anyway <laughs> join us for French Open daily podcasts from Saturday uh, leave us an Apple podcast review tell your friends do sign up to the newsletter and we'll speak to you soon 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.